If you've got your Bibles this morning, you can turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. If you don't have that, there should be a Bible in front of you, and you can turn to page 788 um, to find the book of Zephaniah. So we're going to look at three chapters in this book this morning. We've been working through the book of the Twelve, or the Minor Prophets. We just finished Habakkuk, and now we're looking at um, the, the short book of Zephaniah. We'll look at all three chapters this morning, and if we figure if we take about 30 minutes per chapter, uh, we've got three chapters, we can knock this out in no time. Um, so Zephaniah, this is probably, probably not one of the more familiar books of the Bible to you. For me, um, I, at a certain point in my life, when I was in elementary school, I was involved in something called Bible drill, uh, perhaps if you've grown up in church and I around long enough, you did that, and one of the things that we had to do in Bible drill is memorize the books of the Bible, and so one of the most memorable things for Zephaniah, um, for me, it was one of the Z's, and there's kind of a rhythm as you're trying to memorize the, the minor prophets, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and anyway, it was just one of the easier sections of Scripture to remember. Not very memorable for me, at least for its content. Um, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to read about a chapter and then I'll talk about it, and then we'll read another ch- about another chapter. The, the divisions, at least in my mind, don't coincide exactly with, uh, exactly with the chapter numbers in terms of the content. But when, when I think of Zephaniah, one of the things that I think of is the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, the first book is called The Magician's Nephew. Um, I... Have, have liked that book ever since I saw it because it gives a lot of the explanations about what happens later in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there are several characters in there, many of whom are fairly predictable. There, there's a boy and a girl. They're the main characters, Diggory and Polly. And then Diggory's uncle is a magician, and his name is Andrew in the, the story. And he's not just what you probably think of when you think of a magician. He would, he would think the, the type of people that you're thinking of when you hear the word magician, those are, those are weaklings. Those are imposters. No, he's, he's concerned with real magic and manipulating things to see real, uh, real results. And anyway, they end up stumbling their way into the creation of Narnia. And so they're there, and the children, and then there are a couple of other characters, are amazed as Aslan, the Christ figure, creates Narnia through singing. And, um, and, and again, they're, they're amazed th- through this whole process, the creation of the animals, and then the animals can speak. Um, by the end of the creation account, the children are also in awe of Aslan. The same is not true for Uncle Andrew. When he hears the animals talking, he just hears grunts and he sees beasts, not animals. For him, Aslan was a terrifying creature. And he ends up having something of a breakdown, though the word breakdown might be a little too weak for what happens to him. And as the children are trying to understand why Uncle Andrew didn't see the things that they saw, the explanation is is given there... um, that what you see depends a good bit on the type of person you are. When we get to Zephaniah, we see a lot about the judgment of God in this, in this short book, especially the first couple of chapters, or first two and a half chapters, really. 
Um, for some people, this is a huge put off in terms of the Old Testament. There's, there's a tendency where we can think of the Old Testament, specifically passages like this, is as the reason some people don't become Christians or take Christianity or even Judaism seriously. Um, but as we're going to go, as we move our way through here, through this judgment is some of the, I think many of us at least as we work our way through here, would argue some of the, the most glorious passages and promises of the future for those who trust in God. And as we think about this through the lens of the New Testament, ultimately for those who trust in Jesus Christ Himself. And our attitude toward judgment, again, there's a, there's a, good, a good bit of that depends on what type of person we are or what type of people we are. So let's look at the book of Zephaniah. Uh, one of the dominant themes as we look in this passage is going to be the day of the Lord. Um, in just a moment, I'll read all of chapter 1 going into uh, chapter 2, verse 3. But I want to pick out a few things um, first before we, before we get to this. As, you, as we work through um, chapter 1, uh, we see the day of the Lord first mentioned in verse 7. So it says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. A little bit later on in verse 14, we also see a little bit different language, but similar. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. And then when we get to verse 15, uh, we, see, we see ultimately the, the wrath of God unleashed. And uh, the, the medieval hymn, uh, Day of Wrath, Dies Irae, is actually based on this verse. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So as we work through this passage where we come face to face with the day of the Lord. Let me go back now and read uh, all of chapter 1 and then I'll read the first three verses of chapter 2 as well. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest, along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice... I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. 
On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So, who was Zephaniah? What, what's, what's happening here? And what is, he, what is he talking about? Zephaniah was a prophet who lived about the same time Habakkuk. So if you've been able to come over the last few weeks, much that we've seen about Habakkuk and when he lived, he lived in the southern, king of, uh, southern kingdom of Judah, when the Assyrian Empire, which was a great and brutal and vicious empire, was decreasing in power. And there was a, little, there was a sense in which, okay, we can, take a, we can take a sigh of relief now, we may be safe. And Zephaniah, like some of the others, are prophesying something, um, something imminent, something coming, a, a great kingdom that is Babylon that will arise. Um, Zephaniah lives during the, the reign of Josiah, and we see a longer, a, a longer list of his ancestors than we see in any other prophet. And what Zephaniah apparently wants us to know is that he is a descendant of King Hezekiah. So he's a distant relative of Josiah. He's, he's got uh, royalty in his blood. And it seems as we read through this, and he mentions the king's sons, that he has access to the royal household in a way that many of the other prophets do not have. He also lived around the same time as Jeremiah, perhaps a little bit before. So if you're familiar with Jeremiah and the things that are going on in his prophecies, again, it's the same types of things that we see in Zephaniah. Uh, during Zephaniah's day, there was a lot of religious turmoil. So you had, you had a lot of idolatry. The, uh, his, um, some, of the, some of his relatives, 
King Manasseh especially had had forsaken the Lord and they'd gone after other gods. So you see a lot of religious apostasy, excuse me, apostasy still in Zephaniah's day. But you also see in his day a lot of reform. At some point, whether it was before the preaching of Zephaniah or whether it was after the preaching of Zephaniah, we don't know. King Josiah began to try to change things a lot in his day. He was, there was a, a book of the law of the Lord that was discovered. It was God's law was neglected so much that they didn't even know where the book of the law was. Well, they start trying to clean out the temple. They discover the book of God's law. They read it to Josiah, and he's, his his heart is completely broken. And he begins to try to change things. It appears that things might be in the midst of being changed. But just because Josiah's heart was changed didn't mean that the people's heart was changed and there was still much that needed to be changed. And we see that in Zephaniah's message. In this first, in this first chapter, moving to, to verse 3 of chapter 2, what we see is that God is promising to judge those who claim to be His. God will judge those who claim to be His. These are, these are the people of God, or they had claimed to be God's people, but there, were, there was a lot going on that needed to be changed. When Zephaniah begins to proclaim God's judgment, or ultimately His condemnation on this people, what we see, beginning with verses 2 and moving to verse 3, we see God's judgment is described in such a way that God is reversing creation. So we, if we, we can compare some of this uh, with the creation account in Genesis 1 and, Je- and Genesis 2. Let me go ahead and read verses 2 and 3 one more time. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So God promised that He was going to judge all of the earth in such a way that it appeared that creation was going to be reversed. We see something like this in the life of Noah. As, as Noah, uh, in his day, saw rampant wickedness and injustice, and, and the outcry was, was great, as it would later say about Sodom and Gomorrah as well, God, God judged creation. And it's a reminder for us that as human beings, we are God's image bearers. And we are to, to reflect His glory and, and God's creation will experience the consequence whether we seek the Lord or we run away from Him. We see specifically though in this first chapter that God is holding those who profess to be His accountable in verse 4. I will stretch out My hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. So with those who claim to be God's people, those who profess to be His people, uh, they weren't wholly His. They were, they were seeking other gods and prove- professing to be children of God, so to speak, as well. This is something that can be true for us as well. Um, and you see this several times in the New Testament. You specifically, I was drawn to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. As Jesus gets to the conclusion of that, He says, not everyone who says, this is verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the same can be true of us. We can claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. But if our, if our lives do not reflect that fact at all, then we're lying to ourselves and lying to God. For, for them, it was, it was this double-mindedness. Well, yeah, we, we serve, serve the Lord. We, we're, we're the Lord's people. But we're, we're going to hedge our bets and worship Baal as well. God says He's going to remove the remnant of, of Baal. Um, and again, what we see in there, what we can see in our own lives, is a double-mindedness uh, where, our, where our souls can, can want to do two different things and have two commitments. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart in Matthew 5, one of the Beatitudes, for they shall see God. Sometimes you might think that purity of heart means, well, I don't have any wicked thoughts. What you see in the New Testament, though, when, when James spells this out in chapter 4 of James, is, is to have a pure heart is a, is a single-minded minded commitment to God. Let me read James 4 uh, just, to, just so you can see this a little bit better. James 4, uh, 4 in following. James 4, 4. He says, You adulterous people. Right there, one way to translate that would be you adulteresses which could be an allusion to the stories in the, the Old Testament where the people are portrayed as an, an adulterous bride turning away from the Lord. Uh, so you adulterous people, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it says to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That theme of humility and pride is another thing that we're going to see a lot in Zephaniah. Verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Here it is. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. So to have, if we think of our hearts as the center of who we are, if the center of who we are is moving in different directions, then we're double-minded. To purify our heart means the center of who we are has one focus. And even we can have a pure heart and, and still, still go astray in our thoughts and deeds, but again, it means that the center of who you are is, is aimed at God. And as we see through Christ, uh, aimed at God through Christ with the power of His Spirit. So going back to Zephaniah, they, had, they, had, they were double-minded. Baal the Lord. For us, the question is, is our, is our deepest concern God and who He is and His ways in the Gospel? We need to ask ourselves that. I love the way that Soren Kierkegaard, the, the Danish philosopher-ish, philosopher <laughs> um, described this in the title of his book, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Is the thing that we're willing. Is it God and who He is and His ways? I tried to read that as a college student, but it was too tough and I gave up. So I just I keep quoting the title of it because uh, it's, <laughs> it's very powerful. So I, if you ask me what the book is about, then I'll just say the title. Um, <laughs> but the question for us is, are we committed to the Lord alone? Now, 
there, there are a couple of things we can, we, a couple of ways we can go astray here. Um, no, number one, it, it, we can think, okay, well, do I love, do I love my children more than I, I love God? And therefore, I am, I am not a true believer if sometimes I, I go astray. That's, that's probably going a little too far. We all struggle with this. And so to equate the institutionalized worship of Baal where perhaps there was child sacrifice um, and, and, and legalized temple prostitution, things like that, with going astray in our hearts for some time, Again, those things are equally condemnable, we might say, but it doesn't mean that you're not a genuine believer because you struggle with these things. So again, we can take this too far, but the Scriptures do say several places something like greed is idolatry. When we value acquisition, when we um, value the accumulation of more things more than we love God, or as we saw in um, the discipleship hour, in the, the adult class a little bit earlier, earlier, when profit is more important to us than people, then, then we are, we are double-minded if that is the case for us. And we need to do what James says to do. We purify our hearts. We cry out to God. And, and um, we can cry out to Him confidently because He does grant forgiveness through Christ. So we see that God will judge. He will, he will condemn uh, those who claim to be His, but who are, who are not. And the way in, in the application for us as we seek to be silent before the Lord is where are our priorities? How does the Lord and who He is fit in our priority? And it's, it's so easy for that to drop down. Another, another danger along those lines, and I'm skipping a lot of verses here for the sake of time, but one thing I do want to highlight is uh, what Zephaniah says in verse 12, where he says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. It's this commitment to God not doing anything. I'm living my life. Maybe I, maybe I say that I believe in God. Maybe I claim to believe in God. Um, and I've never even thought about why atheism might be true. But right there, what we see is there can be a practical atheism where there's nothing in your life that reflects the reality of God or the expectation um, that He will ever do anything. Do our lives reflect the belief that we do believe that He will judge the living and the dead, as we say in the Creed? Uh, is there anything in your life, and I need to ask this of my life as well, is there anything in our lives that reflect a belief in eternal life? Is there anything in your life that if you took away your belief in eternal life, or you took away your belief in the final judgment, that thing in your life would no longer make any sense? Um, if, if we have a difficult time thinking of things, then we could be sliding toward the thing that we see in verse 12. But as we, as, so, uh, as we, as we think about how to apply this, I think verse 3 of chapter 2 <laughs> gives us a very pointed um, application. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So what it, if, we, if we really believe these things, um, then the application is to seek the Lord. 
Does your life reflect a search for the Lord? To seek something means you are, it means at minimum that you're displeased with, uh, with where you are now. If I'm, if I'm seeking my keys, usually it means I'm running late, uh, but if I'm seeking my keys in the morning, then I'm displeased with the situation of not having access to my car. And there's a search involved with that. If we are seeking the Lord, then we want to know Him more. We want to know Him better. We want to, to, to experience His presence more. We, we can seek Him through prayer, through His Word, and through our lives together as well, knowing that I cannot know the Lord as I ought to know the Lord by myself. I need you and you need me as well. That's why we seek Him as a community, as a church community. The second thing that we see in this passage is not only that God will judge those who claim to be His, God will judge all peoples. God will judge all peoples. And this begins in verse 4. And again, some of these points bleed into each other. So you see a, you see a small emphasis in the universality of God's judgment in, this first, in the first section, but it re, it's really highlighted in the second section. Again, that begins in, I believe anyway, in verse 4 and goes through verse 8 of chapter 3. So let me read this section now. What you're going to see here is a reference to a lot of the, a lot of the Philistine cities which rejoiced as Judah fell. And you also see this um, in a place called Ammon and Moab, these surrounding little countries. As Judah experienced difficulties, God was saying, I'm not leaving them, them off the hook uh, either. And then you see it as well in, this, um, in another country called Cush. So let me read again verse 4 of chapter 2 all the way to verse 8 of chapter 3. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon. Necron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Carthites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth. And to Him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. 
a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no justice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So again, in this passage, as we see, especially the the beginning of chapter 3, there's still a reference to Judah and Jerusalem. It's in the midst of God's judgment of all the nations here. And so he goes through all the enemies of God's people, those who had oppressed him, um, with the, the high point coming there with Assyria and the condemnation of Assyria. Um, we see the cause of this specifically in in verse 10. And this is something that should cut at the heart of each one of us. He says about about all these nations, specifically about Moab here, um, which is something a common thing we see in in Moab and the other prophets as well. But he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, this shall be their lot in return for their pride. Because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. So the, the root of this, the, the reason for judgment with all of these peoples is the same thing that dwells in the heart of each one of us. It's pride. It's arrogance. It goes back to our first ancestors who saw the fruit and wanted to be as God. We have that same we have those same desires um, in our own hearts. And this, this too um, is what brings us to, to the issue of God's judgment, His final judgment. We bristle against that, at least one reason we do, um, because we don't want God to tell us what to do. We want to be God in our own way. We want to be the ones who call the shots who determine what's right and wrong. And you see this very explicitly when it's referring to Assyria. And uh, I hope hope some of you caught this in verse 15 of chapter 2. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. We see that language often in Isaiah, an earlier prophet. And so Assyria as a whole, Nineveh as a whole, was saying, I am and there is no one else. Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, 
embodied foremost perhaps in their, in their king, was seeking to take the place of God. Now this can, this can um, affect us in a couple of different ways. One thing is we think about this individually and the, the pride that wells up in our own hearts, the, the vainglory, the arrogance, the hubris that comes up as well in taking God's place. Um, that can manifest itself in all sorts of things. Um, if we, we, we rail against the providential decisions that God makes in our lives, uh, or things beyond our control, if we refuse to take responsibility for our own actions, those can be forms of, of pride, but we shouldn't miss the fact that God is talking through Zephaniah to a people here. It's a group of people. And so there, there's, there's a group think that's, that's going on here. Um, I was, I was uh, reminded of that. Um, at, um, my son and I went to a football game yesterday, and, and, and of course, uh, when you know, a call was made that did not go the way that the team we were pulling for uh, was wanting, there's a temptation to stand up and yell, boo, and, and, and I was feeling the temptation to, to boo or get frustrated, and I was thinking to myself, I did not see that play at all. I mean, I, I was in no, I'm in the upper deck, and, and, and I can only see from a distance out of my right eye, there's no way I can see that, and yet I still feel this urge to rail against the decision. And so uh, we, we feel that in, in all sorts of ways, and especially in, a, in an era and a day and an age such that we, we live in, where uh, we've got so much access to what other people think through things like social media, or even for those of us who are not involved in social media, just the internet alone. I mean, we can pick our news source. And so there are, there's, there's this pull toward groupthink of all, all sorts, and uh, there's sometimes when, when individually, you know, there, if I were watching that, the game on TV and, and I could see through the camera, I wouldn't be frustrated with that call at all, but now I'm, I'm with this large group of people and I feel the, the urge to, to shout. The same can be true for us spiritually. On our own, maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't tend to think a certain way. We wouldn't tend to rail against a particular thing that's happening in our society or a particular decision a leader has made or a group of leaders has made. But, <clears throat> but then we, when we, we, we pick our news sources, uh, we see something on social media, and now we're mad as fire as well. We need to be very careful of that as Christians and falling into that trap um, so that we and our group of people, especially when that group of people is outside the church, want to say, I am, and there's no one else. God's calling us to, to humility and patience as well. So the chief application we see in this passage is in verse 8. He says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. God will make all things right one day. And this brings us again to that same question we saw earlier on. What in our lives would be different <clears throat> if we took away our hope? If we took away this verse that we are waiting on God. We are waiting on Jesus to return and come back and we are waiting for that final judgment. If we took away that belief, how would our lives look different? We are called to be people who wait. And then the last thing that we see in this passage. This is, the, it's some, this is the culmination or climax, I believe, of Zephaniah. God will delight in those whom He redeems. God will delight in those whom He redeems. Let me read verses 9-20 through 20 now. For at that time, 
I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against Me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in My holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So now we see God's promises to those whom He's redeemed. Uh, And notice, He doesn't say, first of all, you who have practiced righteousness. Yes, He does say that, but that's not the first thing He says about these people. He calls them a humble people um, and a, a lowly people in verse 12. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And another, one of the things that he says is those are his dispersed ones. And, and you see a cycle in Scripture um, that God is constantly calling people to His presence, but because of their sin, they have to be pushed out. You see that with Adam and Eve. They have to be pushed out. Um, the Lord God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but they sin against Him and they have to be pushed out. Uh, we, you see that with Cain after he murders. He, he's upset because he will be away from the presence of the Lord. You see that in the people of Israel. Uh, they, are, they are in Egypt at first of all and they have to be brought back. And then they are kicked out of the land again and in exile. And so Zephaniah right here is speaking in terms of exile. And so the people God is calling to Himself are His dispersed ones. We are in exile right now. We trust in God. We look to Him. We wait for Him. But we are not yet at the point where we can see Him face to face. He will bring us home. But He will bring specifically those who are humble and lowly home. In other words, He'll bring the broken home. We have to be broken uh, in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, in Matthew 5, 3. Uh, blessed are the meek, shall they, they, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, this also reminds us of the necessity of repentance. 
Martin Luther was October 31st, 1517, I believe, when he nailed up the 95 Theses. I think it was the first one that said when Jesus Christ calls a person to repent, his whole life shall be one of repentance. We realize that we all have, we all have broken God's law. And so we don't live perfectly. We don't live sinlessly. We live repentantly. And if we're living repentantly, we're, gonna, we're called to humility as well, knowing that it's not on our own that we, that we come into the Lord's presence. Um, but for the humble, for the broken, for the repentant, they are called to rejoice and to fear not because the Lord Himself is rejoicing over them. This reminds us that the love of the Lord is sweeter than the wrath of the Lord is harsh. Um, the Bible says, the Bible never says God is wrath. The Bible does say God is love in 1 John 4. Um, the wrath of the Lord, His judgment is, and I, I first heard Martin Luther uh, refer to this, uh, and then I found out it was in the Bible later on in Isaiah 28, um, that God's wrath, His judgment, is His strange work, His foreign or alien work. But He, he delights to share His love with us. And it says, He rejoices over you with gladness. In verse 17, He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Um, to refer again to, to Lewis and the magician's nephew, the way the, that Aslan creates Narnia is, is through singing. You see this too in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. If you're uh, for those, okay, I'm nerding out here. Just, I'm just that's just what's happening. Um, in the Silmarillion, uh, the first time I read the Silmarillion, I, well, first time I didn't understand anything. The second time, uh, I was a little perplexed by the, the the way that God sings everything into creation. There. That, that comes from, a, there's a biblical emphasis. Our God is a singing God. He's a God who rejoices. And He specifically rejoices over His people. Not because they're perfect, but because they're humble and broken and they come to Him. And as we think about this, um, as we think about this, we think about the way that Jesus welcomes us to Himself. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the same sentiment we see here. God is love. And He loves His people. And He delights in His people uh, who, who, whom He knows through Jesus Christ. One, one application of this as we, as we think of, about this passage in closing is not only for us not to fear, but I was drawn to verse 16. If we really believe these truths, that we're called to praise God because He is exulting over us. He's rejoicing over us. It says, let not your hands grow weak. In this life, our hands grow weak. Work is toilsome. But if we, if we are confident in the fact that our Lord is rejoicing over us, God's called you to a work. And um, don't, let your, don't let your hands grow weak. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, I thank You for the truths that we see in Your Word. I pray that You would help us as a people not to let our hands grow weak, but to follow the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead. Help us to follow You in humility, meekness, and yet in confidence, knowing that You rejoice over Your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.